If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to Jonah chapter 3, where we've passed the halfway point in the story of Jonah. We're, uh, we're now into the, the third chapter, uh, second week in the third chapter. So we'll be finishing up over the next two weeks with, with chapter 4. But today, Jonah chapter 3. Now, chances are pretty good if you've heard the radio at all in the last several years that you've um, heard Desiree's catchy hit song, You Gotta Be. You gotta be hard. You gotta be tough. You gotta be stronger. You gotta be cool. You gotta be calm. You gotta stay together. All I know, I all, all I know, love will save the day. And the first part describes life, right? Especially in a place like New York. Sometimes you gotta be hard. You gotta be tough. You gotta be stronger. Other times you gotta be cool. You gotta be calm. You gotta stay together. But yet, Desiree concludes, in the end, all I know is that love will save the day. And I don't know what she means by that, but it certainly rings true for those of us who follow Jesus. And as we'll see, love will save the day is pretty close to the message of today's passage. In recent years, we've been living, though, in a tough guy era. If you uh, saw the opening ceremonies of the Winter Olympics, this was dramatically portrayed in the two people that all the athletes had to walk past as they marched in, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, two of the world's tough guys. Not many years back, our own president aspired to be a tough guy in his own way. And yet, to the strong and the stirring message of today's passage is that it's not tough guys who save the day. No, in today's passage, it's soft hearts that save the day. It's soft hearts that save a city. So let's get back into the story of Jonah. We've um, been, we're five weeks into the story. Jonah's been through a lot already. He's run away from God's presence. He's refused to listen to what God told him to do. Uh, he got caught up in a storm at sea. He got told off and pressured by the pagan sailors who were the sort of people Jonah looked down on. And then Jonah almost drowned after being cast into the raging sea. But at the last moment, he had been swallowed by a great sea creature in which, miraculously, he was kept alive for three days and three nights. And in the fish's belly, Jonah had begun working it through with God. He finally prayed. He finally talked to God, something that he hadn't done up to that point in the story. Jonah realized that though he'd been running from God, God hadn't given up on him. God in mercy had sent that sea creature to save Jonah's life. And so chapter 2 ended with Jonah exclaiming, Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the sea creature vomited Jonah back onto dry land. And we wonder, what will happen next? Will Jonah go to Nineveh now like God told him to do in the first place? Will Jonah go to the temple first, uh, back to the place of God's presence to fulfill his vows and offer praise and sacrifice to God? That's what Jonah said he would do when he prayed in the fish's belly. 
But we don't hear about Jonah doing either of those things. No, it's actually God who makes the next move in the story, not Jonah. And what God does is repeat almost word for word a second time God's original message to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out, depending on your translation, either call out against it or call out to it, the message I will give you. Now here's what we don't know. We don't know how long Jonah had been back on land before God spoke to him again. We don't know if God waited and waited for Jonah to fulfill the vows he said he was going to make and make the sacrifices he said he was going to make and to obey then God's original word to go to Nineveh and maybe Jonah failed to do any of this. Or we don't know if God spoke again to Jonah immediately before Jonah even had a chance to do any of this. We just don't know where Jonah's at spiritually when God speaks to him the second time. It's if the narrator is like, that would be the wrong question. The right question is where is God at with Jonah? And what we learn is that God is giving Jonah a second chance. God speaks to Jonah again. And in a way, this is God's mercy to Jonah. God's not giving up on Jonah. God is a God of second chances. However, this second time that God speaks, God adjusts God's word to Jonah ever so slightly, probably in recognition of Jonah's stubbornness. God says, call out against or to Nineveh the message that I tell you. <laughs> Jonah, just say what I tell you to say. Nothing more, nothing less. God's got Jonah on a short lease here, and given Jonah's track record so far, we could understand why. Well, how does Jonah respond this second time that God speaks to him? Well, we find out that he has a softer heart now. The time in the fish's belly has done its work. Verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah obeys this time. And it's because of Jonah's soft heart, his willingness to obey, to be a messenger, to be a voice for God, to be used by God, that the story can move forward. Nothing else in chapter 3 takes place if Jonah doesn't have a soft heart to respond to God's word. So this is the first time we see in chapter 3 that it's soft hearts that save the day. And I wonder how many times this is true for us. Where God has something wonderful that God wants to do, and God asks us to be part of it, and whether it happens depends on how we respond. Maybe it's not something huge, something geopolitical like it is with Jonah, Maybe it's something seemingly small, like reconciling with someone that we're upset with or confessing something that we did wrong. I can think of a time uh, a friend of mine owed me a large sum of money, and um, I was pretty upset and frustrated that he was not paying it back when he was supposed to. Though truth be told, he'd gone through a very hard financial situation that wasn't his fault, 
and that had cost him a great deal of money. Well, at one point, I felt God saying, just tell him you'll forgive the debt. And I was reading the Sermon on the Mount at the time, actually, I think, preaching through it. We, we were looking at it here at CBC. And, and Jesus says something like this in there, or says something like what, like what God was impressing on me to do as I'm studying the Sermon on the Mount. It says there, Jesus says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And then a little later, when you pray, pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And I wrestled with it, but I forgave the guy the money. I told him, you know, I follow Jesus and Jesus tells us to forgive those who owe us. Because God has forgiven everything we owe him. And at that time, this guy didn't know Jesus. And since then, he has come to know Jesus. And I have no idea how much my forgiving that debt might have played into it or maybe didn't. I, I don't know. Um, but you never know when having a soft heart and listening to what God tells you to do might change someone's life. Maybe yours, maybe someone else's, maybe both. Well, that's the first part of this story in verses 1 to 3. It's about Jonah's soft heart. So far, the story has been about Jonah, right? A one man's personal relationship, the rocky personal relationship with God. <laughs> but now in verse 4, the scene sh suddenly shifts. The camera pulls back way back, and all of a sudden we're on an international stage dealing with geopolitics, with kings, and with a world-class city in the ancient world. It's a jarring change of perspective to, to take in and to adjust to as we're following this story. Nineveh was one of the great cities of, of the world in Jonah's day. Um, it was one of the great cities of Assyria, which, if you remember, was the enemy of God's people, of Jonah's people. Assyria had oppressed Israel in the past, causing them to suffer. And currently, at the time of Jonah, Assyria was going through a rebuilding phase. They had had a few weak kings and some inner troubles, but they were still hated. They were still a threat. And they would, as it turned out, still in the future inflict much pain on the Israelites. So if you're an Israelite and you're hearing the story of Jonah later, maybe a generation or two later after 722 BC, you hear this story and Assyria, they're the ones who have utterly destroyed your country and massacred your people. And even though this hasn't happened yet in the time of Jonah, the people of Nineveh are still Jonah and his people's hated and feared enemies. Jonah, walking into Nineveh, is walking into the beast's lair. And as he arrives, the scene of his arrival is filled with ambiguity. And the Hebrew scriptures, they love to use ambiguity to pull us in and to get us wondering about the story. So let me share with you uh, three ambiguities about Jonah's arrival in Nineveh. First, the end of verse 3 says, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. At least that's how my translation puts it. But interestingly, 
This isn't literally what the Hebrew text says. Literally, it says, Nineveh was a great city to God. And to God, in Hebrew, can be a figure of speech, which means great or extreme, which is how most translators translate it. A very great city, an extremely great city. But if you go with the literal translation, Nineveh was a great city to God. And how could that be? In what sense could Nineveh that Jonah's walking into be a great city to God? Does God see the city differently than Jonah does, perhaps? Well, the second ambiguity is we learn in verse 4 that Nineveh takes three days to journey through. But strikingly, we only ever hear about Jonah going one day into the city. We never hear about days two or three. Why? Was Jonah being disobedient again? Not doing the full job? Doing it only half-heartedly? Doing a token obedience? <laughs> or was Nineveh's response to Jonah so overwhelmingly positive that he didn't even need to do the full job? It's unclear how well Jonah's carrying out his task. But what is clear is Nineveh's response. Before we get to that, though, here's the third ambiguity. In, also in verse 4, listen to Jonah's message to the people of Nineveh. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It, this doesn't come through in English, but in the original Hebrew, the word translated overthrown is ambiguous. It can mean overthrown. It can also mean simply changed. Overthrown, that sounds bad, right? That sounds negative. But changed could be positive. Forty more days in Nineveh will be changed. So maybe a better translation to preserve the ambiguity would be 40 days and Nineveh will be turned upside down. In a bad way or a good way? I don't know. It's ambiguous to us as readers. Clearly, we know Jonah takes it as negative. And the Ninevites take it as negative, as a warning about being overthrown. But is this what God means? Notice also that it's simply a warning. There's no call to repent. There's no conditional statement that if you change your ways, this bad thing won't happen to you. None of that. Just a simple warning. 40 more days and Nineveh will be turned upside down. But the 40 days part kind of leaves the door open a crack. Why give a warning and why give a time 40 days if you're just going to destroy the city? Why not just destroy it? And why drag a prophet kicking and screaming all the way from some other place? It probably took Jonah a month to get to Nineveh. Why go through all that trouble if you're just going to destroy the city? Do you realize there's grace in a warning? There's mercy in a warning. When God gives you a warning as you're reading scripture and there's a warning there, it's God's mercy towards you. If God wasn't being merciful, if God didn't care about you, God wouldn't warn you. God would just punish you, destroy you, smite you. <laughs> if God warns you, that's a soft-hearted action. It gives you a chance to choose for yourself what you want to do. 
and whether you want to try to escape the penalty. If you're a parent, you've, you've probably done this with your kids. You, you've given them a warning in hopes that you don't have to punish them or, or they will, don't have to suffer the negative consequences of the thing you're warning them about. Or maybe your parents did it with you. I remember uh, one time as a young kid, I remember breaking a lamp in our living room. And um, I was probably playing ball in the house or doing something my parents had told me not to do, and I broke the lamp. And, and my parents didn't know for sure it was me, but they strongly suspected it. And um, they said, they, point, you know, they pointed out that the lamp was broken, and they said, if you did it, you can be honest and you can confess it, and there may be a small consequence. But if you lie about it, and we find out, we're warning you, there's going to be a big consequence. There's going to be a bigger punishment because lying is bad and we aren't going to be able to trust you in the future. I had a choice and the warning was actually my parents' love for me in action. I didn't have to guess. I didn't have to wonder about what they wanted from me or what the right thing to do was. They loved me and they were telling me and letting me know how I could avoid a bigger consequence. And implicitly, at least, that's what God's doing for the Ninevites by sending them this warning. In their case, there's no guarantee, right? Forty days and Nineveh will be turned upside down. It's not a guarantee that things will turn out well. The Ninevites can't make God do X or Y. But the king of Nineveh recognizes there's the potential for hope here. Look how he responds in verse 9. Who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent. Who knows? Maybe it's possible. And this possibility prompts the people of Nineveh to jump into action. Verse 5 says, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth. These were typical ways um, to show remorse, to be penitent, to say that you were sorry to a deity. They were humbling themselves. Um, they stopped eating. They wore unattractive and uncomfortable clothes because what they were saying was, okay, God, you've got my attention. I'm not running after my own comfort here. I'm not going on with my life. I'm not checking what's on Netflix this evening. I am stopping everything and giving you my full attention. And I'm really sorry for what I've done. And verse 5 says, everyone did this in Nineveh, from the greatest to the least. Or as we find out as the story continues, from the king himself all the way down to the cattle and the livestock. Which is strange for us, right? But back then in that culture, um, your animals were, were so much more part of your life and your survival. They were your wealth. In poor families, at night they actually brought their animals into their house to keep them safe in some cultures. Um, and so it wasn't unusual to involve your animals in a ritual like this. And so 
Then word reaches the king of Nineveh, the tough guy, right? The, the powerful one, the one who could have called for Jonah's head to be taken off. The one whose predecessors had marched with armies to Jonah's country and threatened Israel and intimidated them and forced them into submission to Assyria so that they had had to pay heavy taxes and tribute prior to Jonah's time. That king in Nineveh hears Jonah's warning, and he arises from his throne, and he removes his royal robes, and he puts on sackcloth, and he sits in ashes. Wow. <laughs> he too has a soft heart. He believes God, and he responds with repentance. And he tells all his people to do the same. Don't let anyone, he says, eat or drink anything, not even the animals. Let everyone, people and animals, wear sackcloth. Unless this just be about outward ritual, also let everyone call out mightily to God and let everyone turn from their evil way and their violence. We've been evil. We all really need to change. Let's change and let's beg God for mercy. Who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Can you imagine? Can you imagine any modern world leader, any modern government, any contemporary dictator responding this way? Can you imagine Joe Biden or any past U.S. president responding this way? What we see here in Nineveh is an incredible response, an utterly surprising response, an unbelievable response. Jonah went one day into the city, and he simply stated a one-line message, 40 more days and Nineveh will be turned upside down. And all the Ninevites instantly respond. They humble themselves. They change. They repent. They have soft hearts. And guess what? They put a lot of us to shame. They put Jonah to shame, right? <laughs> Compared to how he responded to God in chapter 1. And they put Israel at the time of Jonah and her kings to shame. At the time of Jonah, who was the king of Israel? Jeroboam II, a notoriously wicked king. And God sent prophets to Jeroboam. Uh, uh, sorry, Jeroboam II, um, sent prophets to Jeroboam and to his people. Amos was one of them, possibly Hosea as well. But Israel's king and Israel's people, they did not repent. They did not listen. How about you? When you've realized you've done something wrong, something to offend God, have you ever repented with this kind of earnestness? How soft is your heart compared to that of the Ninevites? Soft hearts save the day. Soft hearts save the city. Do you have one? Do we, as God's people, have them? Well, we've seen Jonah's soft heart. We've seen the Ninevites' soft hearts. 
Now third in verse 10, we see God's soft heart. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God did relent of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God did not do what God had warned God would do. God relented. God saw how the Ninevites responded, the fearsome, pagan, wicked, ruthless Ninevites who had it coming, who completely deserved it. And God said, wow, they repented. I'm not going to overthrow their city after all. And so 40 days came and went, and life went on as usual for the Ninevites. Which means Jonah's warning didn't come true. Which makes you wonder, did the people of Nineveh realize God changed God's mind? Or did they just figure Jonah's warning had been an empty one or even a false one? Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Right here in verse 10, the focus is on what we know happened. And that is that God had a soft heart even toward the enemies of God's people, even toward the Assyrians. And God changed his mind, or so it seems, and didn't send the punishment that that God had threatened. Can God change his mind? Well, we very quickly get into philosophy here when we ask that question. But I think it's enough to say that If you go one direction and God says, because you've gone that direction, I'm going to respond in this way. And so you turn around and you heed that warning and you go back the other direction. God reserves the right to say, okay, then I'm going to change what I plan to do as well. God responds to us. It's a relationship. And God is a person. And God reserves the right to change what God does if we change in response to what God tells us. So God has a soft heart toward the Ninevites. And when we are sorry and when we change, God reserves the right to be merciful to us too. And if God had mercy on the Ninevites, I'll bet he might just have mercy as well on you and me when we repent. Now, some scholars have found the Ninevites' repentance even harder to believe and even more unrealistic, historically speaking, than Jonah's surviving inside of a big fish. How could one simple sentence-long warning change a whole city? How could it humble a great king? How could it cause mass public repentance and humility? That just doesn't happen. doesn't, yeah, just doesn't happen. Um, how could Jonah's one sentence message be like a small striking of a match, powerful enough to cause a powder keg like response that turned a whole city upside down? Well, on a historical level, first of all, people believed in the gods back then. They thoroughly and completely did. They were superstitious. They were religious. And because they didn't have the NSA or the CIA, they consulted omens and prophets and astrological signs to find out 
what they should do, what the gods were up to. This wasn't a stretch of faith for them. This was normal life. It's how kingdoms gained intelligence and made decisions in ancient times. We know historically around the time that Jonah prophesied in 763, there was a full solar eclipse. And if you know anything about the ancient world, eclipses were considered great harbingers of doom back then. Also, there was a serious famine in Nineveh around that time and great unrest among the populace and rebellions in various places. Further, because Assyria was weak at this time, they were suffering several military defeats along their borders from neighboring nations. And so add all of that up together, it actually makes it likely that Jonah's message would have been taken seriously. God may well have prepared the Ninevites for this moment through these other events. God may well have softened their hearts so that they were open to Jonah's message. All as it turns out as an act of God's graciousness, asking them to change so God didn't have to destroy them. Amazing that God would go through so much trouble to care for a pagan, godless place like Nineveh, the enemies of God's people, no less. But God still needed to then send Jonah to pull all the pieces together and call the people to repent, which eventually Jonah did. And as a result, the people of Nineveh did repent, and so the city was saved. Why? Because of soft hearts. Jonah's soft heart, softened heart, so that he was willing to listen to what God told him to do. And the Ninevites' soft hearts, so they were willing to listen and to humble themselves and to repent. And then God's soft heart in response to their repentance, so that God relented and did not destroy the city after all. Soft hearts saved the city. Soft hearts saved the day. Not tough guys, not political prowess or military might, soft hearts. So what do we learn from Jonah 3 about listening to God? Well, very simply, it takes a soft heart. How's your heart these days? Is it hard or is it soft? Is it distracted? Is it cold? Are you angry with God? Are you hurt or disappointed by God? Or maybe just apathetic toward God? Or are you receptive? Is your heart warm toward God? That will affect how well you're able to hear God's voice. Just ask Jonah, right? Or ask the Ninevites. Well, what is it that can soften our hearts if our hearts are hard? Well, when meat is tough, it doesn't make a very good steak, right? So the chef will pound it, maybe. Or will rub tenderizer into it. Or will marinate it for a long time to soften it. So 
what's the secret ingredient or the secret process that can soften our hard hearts? Well, God has an ingredient, and it's called mercy. It's called grace. Undeserved, unexpected mercy. God had mercy on Jonah, right? Back in chapter 1, Jonah was ready to die, ready to throw his life away. But God's intent wasn't to kill Jonah, but to save Jonah from himself. And so God provided a fish to rescue Jonah. And in the the fish's belly, as Jonah realizes God has unexpectedly saved him as he thinks he's he's going to die, something new is birthed in Jonah's heart. And he comes out with a softer heart. And God is merciful in warning the the Ninevites too. Sending a prophet all that way to warn them of what was coming. And this mercy plays a role in softening the hearts of the Ninevites. When you know you've been forgiven a lot, when, when you realize you've gotten better than you deserve, it changes your heart. So how about your heart and my heart? Have you forgotten how much mercy you've received? Do you realize how much mercy God's had on you? If you do, that will soften your heart like nothing else will. There's nothing like God's mercy to soften our hearts. So let's move to this week's listening exercise as we've been doing each week during this series. So whether you're here in the building or whether you're on Zoom, I invite you to get comfortable to get out a pen and a paper if you're um, um, journaling or your phone. And I want to invite you to think, um, can you think of a time that God had mercy on you? Can you think of a time that God had mercy on you? Take a second and think about that. Maybe God provided you something good that you didn't deserve. Maybe God saved you from something dangerous or terrible that could have happened. Maybe you just realized God forgave you for what you'd done. What you'd done. Can you think of a time God had mercy on you? If you can, what did that feel like? Try to think back. Put yourself back in that moment when that happened. What, what did it feel when God had mercy on you. How did you respond? Think back, put yourself in the situation. Go over the memory again in your mind.
And then I want to invite you to thank God for it all over again. Oh God, you're grateful again for the mercy God had on you. Then lastly, I want to invite you now, just think about this morning as we've been hearing the story of Jonah worshiping God. What's God saying to you this morning? What's sticking out to you? What's significant? Just think about one thing that God's saying to you this morning.